All right, we can take your Bibles out with me, make your way over to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew in the fifth chapter. That is the last time I intend to say that for the foreseeable future. And so since we are going to do the maybe somewhat ambitious thing we've come from in this of this chapter this morning, maybe I should just summarize a little bit uh, where we've come from in this last month. This is the Beatitudes we spent time. So where we started at the beginning of Matthew 5, right, is with the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, we spent time thinking in there, what does this mean? Jesus is answering the question, who is a disciple? Who is a Christ follower? Or who is a Christian? Like, what are they? What are those type of people? And the Beatitudes are his fundamental, foundational answers to those questions. What does it mean that these people would live all of their lives unto God? This is who they are. People with this type of disposition, they would live all their lives in all these areas unto God. And then we started to transition. And we said, okay, so what does that mean they do? Like, if that's who they are, then let's answer the question, how do they live? And the little summary statement that you get there is they're going to be the type of people who would actually live a distinct life, a set-apart life, a life that would make an impact. They would be salty salt. They'd be the type of light that, I don't know, gives light. That's who a Christian is, who a Christ follower is, who a disciple is. That's what they do. And then we began to see, okay, well, if they're going to be these, this distinct, set-apart set type of people, like, why must that be true of them? And Jesus says, because it's what the law says. I've come to fulfill the law. I haven't come to abolish it. Like, there's some problems we're lacking. The people around you, like the culture around you, these scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees hanging out in the first century, the reason that you can't just go along with them and think that you're gonna be a person who's faithful to the law, who is the type of disciple you're supposed to be, who does the type of things you're supposed to do, is because they've kind of, sort of, completely, totally, altogether missed the boat on what it means to live our lives unto God. So Jesus says, let me help you out with that. Let me fill that up for you. Let me fulfill the law for you so that you might understand what the law is actually calling you to do and what the law, how the law is actually calling you to live. And so we've seen him do that. We've seen him do that over the last several weeks. And one of the ways that he's done that, he starts with anger. Stripes, Pharisees, Sadducees are saying things like, hey, as long as you don't murder somebody, you're good. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can murder somebody, or you can call somebody a fool, or you can insult somebody. And no matter what you do, however you vent that anger that's in your heart, you're really committing the same root sin. You're looking at them and saying, I don't really care that God says you're an image bearer who's worthy of dignity and respect. Like, I'm not worried about that. In this moment right now, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, and that's vent my anger towards you and disregard the fact that that's true of you. And then we, we move on from there. And as we move on from there, well, what do we see next? We see Jesus take this same approach, this root sin approach, and lay it on the sin like lust. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, as long as you don't sleep with somebody else, it's not your spouse, you're fine. And Jesus says, not fine. The problem is you would actually harbor a desire for a sinful relationship. That's actually the root sin. And so I don't care if it's something you do or if it's something you just harbor in your mind, you're committing the same root sin. The same thing's true of you regardless. So don't go along with scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. They're missing some stuff. Let me fill up the meaning of that word. You're missing it. To minimize it, said it's no big deal. Jesus says, massive deal. You're missing it. You, the, the law has been cheapened too much. So let's fill up 
the law. And as Jesus walks through all these different categories of the law, I hope what you've seen over the course of the last month is that we actually are much greater sinners than maybe we realize we were. Because the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees have made this thing into like this checklist. So as long as I don't kill somebody, or as long as I don't sleep with somebody I'm not married to, or as long as I give my wife a certificate of divorce, I'm fine. I'm on the, I'm on the up and up here. And Jesus comes and says, nope. Not primarily about what you do. I'm looking at your heart. I not only see your actions, I see your thoughts and your motives. And so as you feel that, I hope you realize like that's a really big issue because you might could keep yourself from killing somebody, but it's probably hard to keep yourself in the moment from having a wrong reaction in your own heart towards somebody. You can probably keep yourself from sleeping with somebody in your own willpower. Maybe you're just, you can man up and do that. It's great. But the problem is there's a root sin that comes way, way, way before that that you might be very prone to stumble into. Jesus is looking at your heart. All through Matthew 5, he said, this is what the law really and truly means. He's filling it up. Today, we're coming to the end of it. And you say, well, thank goodness we're coming to the end of it because I don't know how much more of it I can take. I don't know how much more of a sinner I can be convinced that I am. But I'm just gonna tell you, don't get a little worse before it gets better. So let's look beginning in verse 33 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Again, You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, uh, we come as people uh, who are challenged even by what we've just read. Lord, we will need your help. Uh, We will need your uh, Holy Spirit to guide us and to illumine us this morning uh, to see what your word is saying to us. Lord, help us. Lord, apply it to our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. Convict us where we're falling short, for we certainly are Jesus because we have come. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we have come to subsections 4, 5, and 6 of what we're calling the antitheses. So Jesus has said, not this, but that. Nope, here's what people are saying. And it's not like this, it's actually like that. He's done that three times already. We're gonna tackle three more times in the rest of our time uh, together this morning. He starts off in verse 33, the same way you've seen him start off before. He says again, you or y'all have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
So Jesus is, again, all through this chapter saying, this is what they're saying. Y'all have heard it said. That's the problem. Jesus is not taking offense with what is written. He's taking offense with what has been said. And the people who are saying it are the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is what they're saying. And what they're saying in this particular instance is y'all shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Challenge this morning is that's not exactly what's written. What we're talking about this morning seems to be kind of a compilation of a few different texts, maybe Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, Numbers 30, a couple texts that they're putting together and kind of saying this is what what it says. This is what people are, this is what they've distilled from the law of God. Hey, if you swear something and you invoke the Lord, you got to do it. This is how the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are interpreting this whole deal with oaths. If you swear something to the Lord, like you better do it. But again, hopefully you're getting to know the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees just a little bit. And so what I'm going to say shouldn't, shouldn't shock you. But since this is the way they're interpreting it, they found a little loophole. What if they want to be the type of people who take on an oath? Like, I want to really convince you that I, I mean what I say, but maybe I want to leave just a little bit of wiggle room in case the wind blows differently or I change my mind or a better opportunity comes up. So what they start doing is they start swearing by things that are maybe associated with God or close to God or just something that's less than God. So they'll say things like, I swear by heaven or I swear by the earth or I swear by Jerusalem or I swear by my head. They start saying things like that. This is, what, this is how they've interpreted the law. Wouldn't you just love to know what Jesus thought about that? Wouldn't you just love for Jesus to tell you what he thinks about that practice? Verse 34, but I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. So what's the the problem? If I swear by heaven, what's the issue? If I would invoke heaven as this means of me taking an oath, what's my problem? Problem is it ain't yours. It's God's heaven. So if you think you can swear by heaven and somehow dodge being accountable to God, we've got a problem because it's not yours. It's not your heaven to swear by. It's God's heaven. He's created it. He owns it. It's his dominion. He rules and reigns in the kingdom of heaven. So if you would invoke heaven thinking you're gonna dodge accountability to God, thinking you found a loophole, think again. Heaven, obviously, is directly associated with God. Okay, okay, okay. I won't swear by heaven. Then how about I just move on? And how about I just swear or by the earth, not God. Like, oh, earth. Why can't I swear by the earth? The earth's earth's not God. Like, right. But it's God's earth. Just like heaven is God's heaven, the earth's God's earth. So if you look out at the earth and you say, I'm going to invoke myself under this oath that I'm going to take under the earth, to the earth. It's not yours. You don't own it. It's his. He's got dominion over it. He rules and reigns over it. He's sovereign over it. Even now, he controls it totally. So if you would say, well, I'm not going to swear by heaven. I'll just move on to the earth. The problem that you got is it's still God's earth. If you think you can swear by the earth and dodge accountability to God, think again. It's not your earth. It's his earth associated with God, tied directly to God. Okay, let's get a little smaller. Heaven's too big, earth's too big. How about Jerusalem? Let's just stick with Jerusalem. Or by Jerusalem. Don't swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Now, how in the world did you think you could disconnect Jerusalem from God? The Lord literally says, it's it's my city. The Lord says it's like little miniature mountain that Jerusalem built on, Mount Zion. He He calls it his holy hill, like it's set apart. It's his. It's for him. It's where he's demanded that the temple be built. It's where he says, my presence is going to be with my people forever. Like I'm putting my presence there. 
How'd you think you could swear by Jerusalem and escape being accountable to God? You can't. It's his city. It's his, it's his place. It's set apart for him. You surely can't disconnect Jerusalem from God. So don't swear by Jerusalem thinking you're going to dodge being accountable to God. Okay. Can't swear by heaven. Not mine. Can't swear by the earth. Not mine. Can't swear by Jerusalem. It's not my city. It's God's city. So I'll just think about the most mine thing that I could possibly think of. Like what, what could I like put through my head that would be the most mine thing I could think? That's it. It's my head. Like that's the most essentially me thing that I could think about. The most essential body part toward my existence. Like if I ain't got a head, I ain't got me. So that's me. Obviously my head. Surely I could swear by my head. If there's anything that's mine, it's my head. And Jesus says, no. Don't swear by your head. Don't do it. Don't take an oath by your head. Why? Because for you cannot make one hair white or black. So if you want me to prove to you that it's not as all yours as you think it is, you're not quite as sovereign over it as you think you are, make your hair grow a different color. You can't do it. Now you can paint it, you can dye it, you can manipulate it, you can make it look different, but you, you are not sovereign over what color hair you grow. God's sovereign over that. Some of us aren't even sovereign over whether our hair grows or not, right? I'm, I'm quickly on the way to being a part of that club, right? So some of us are running out of that. We're not sovereign over our hair growth. So if you need to know whether you should swear by your hair or not, like, think about it. You, you shouldn't because it's not yours. It's the most yours thing you can think of, and you're not in control over it. God's in control over it. So what's the, Jesus, summarize it. Just tell me, just tell me what you mean, Jesus. Here, don't take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. Anything more? Why? Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Who is a disciple? Who's a Christ follower? Who's a Christian? The type of person who speaks with integrity. Their speech is characterized by integrity through and through. Now, Jesus isn't directly railing, I don't think, against all oaths ever. And the reason I would say that is because he's going to speak under one at the end of Matthew when he's on trial. Paul will take three while he's in the, the course of his ministry in the epistles. We even see Hebrews 6 talking about God speaking under oath. So I don't think the problem is all oaths ever. The problem he's condemning here, what he's critiquing here, are people like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees voluntarily entering into oath, taking an oath, swearing by something to try to ensure the truthfulness of their words. Trying to ensure like you can really, really believe what I'm saying because I swear by such and such. And Jesus says, you should not be the type of people who have to do that. You should be the type of people who are so characterized by integrity that when you say yes, people can take your yes and put it in a bank. Or when you say no, people can take your no and put it in a bank. You are to be a people characterized through and through by integrity. Your speech should be seasoned with salt. You should be able to speak the truth. Yes, yes. No, no. Brothers and sisters, how, how are you doing with that? How, how are we doing with that? We're these people, obviously, as we continue to explore what the church is, who we are as these people who do life together. We do just that. We do life together on an intimate basis. So if we're going to be the people who are going to be faithful to Scripture and actually be vulnerable with one another and real with one another and transparent with one another and help one another fight sin and get to know one another really well and be hospitable to one another and just go deep together with our lives, we're going to have to have this. 
Community is hard enough as is. We're different people. We come from different places. We got different hobbies. We got different interests. We got different convictions. We're putting that all in a big pot together and blending it up. That's hard enough as it is. It's much harder if we don't tell the truth. If we're not a people who can take each other's words to the bank, community gets harder and harder and harder. Community will be hard. It is hard. The Bible says it's hard. That's why the Bible gives us so many instructions on how to do it. But brothers and sisters, the foundation for us is we're going to have to be a people of integrity. The words that we say are going to have to mean something if we'll do this well. How are we doing with that? That's hard. It's a challenge. It's not the way maybe the world tends to tell you to speak, not the way the people around you speak. Maybe you don't tend to put that much weight on your words. Maybe you don't think that deep into it. Jesus is saying you should. That's hard enough, Jesus. But how about the way you repay wrongdoers? What do you think about that, Jesus? Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said. Indeed, you have heard it said. This is coming directly from it is written. You can hop over to Exodus 21 or Leviticus 24 or Deuteronomy 19, and you're going to find this. And all those places is going to be talking about punishing towards wrongdoers, particularly civil government. Like, how does a civil government retaliate towards wrongdoers? And the command, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, is meant to restrict punishment. Like, the punishment should not exceed the crime. You should not get a punishment that is harsher, that is unproportionately harsh to the crime that you've committed. This is what that's intended to do. And again, it's at the civil level. Like how does, the, how does Israel, the state, how does the government respond to evildoers? It's addressing that question. Which leaves us with the question, hey, how, disciples, like how does a disciple respond to a wrongdoer? How does a Christ follower, a Christian, how do we go about responding to wrongdoers? When people do wrong to us, what do we do? Help us out, Jesus. What do you think, Jesus? Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. That's pretty simple. How do we respond to wrongdoers? Jesus says we don't. Jesus says it's not our place. Jesus says it's not our place to retaliate. And you say, hold on, wait just a second. Jesus, what exactly do you mean? I'm a red-blooded American. I got my CWP in my pocket. I got my don't tread on me flag in my yard. What do you mean, Jesus? Aren't you the guy that's gonna go on and tell these people? Like, if you ain't got a sword, you better sell what you got and get one. Like, clarify, Jesus. So here you go. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus, what exactly? Do you mean? Okay, well, I can help us out a little bit this morning. Maybe there's a little activity we can all do together to help us think through this thing. I want you to take your right hand and touch your own right cheek. Ready, go. Good, that's a good job. Most of you, some of you were too cool for that. I understand. Some of you were scared you'd mess it up, so you didn't do it. I got you, all right? But here's what we just learned. That was fairly easy to do. My right hand, my right cheek. Okay, not that hard. But now let's imagine we've got an imaginary friend standing across from us, and we want to make our right hand touch their right cheek. To make our palm side of our right hand touch their right cheek, especially with any rate of speed, we would have to start here and come down and go around there. Kind of excessive. Why would you do the load up, come reach around thing? You wouldn't do that. Nope. If you want to make your right hand touch their right cheek, you would use the back of your hand. This is what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus has you getting backhand slapped across the face. And Jesus says, that happens to you. Don't resist that. Backhand slap. I've been hit harder than that. People have done more worse things than me. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I've been hit harder than that too, right? But here's the point. 
this is the single most disrespectful thing you could do to somebody in that society. In the East, it still is that way today. Like if you really want to disrespect somebody, you backhand slap them. The ultimate sign of disrespect. And Jesus says, if somebody disrespects you to the most extreme degree you can think, it's not your responsibility to defend your honor. You, my disciples, you, my Christ follower people, you Christians, you're not gonna be a people who run around like people on fire to defend your honor. You've gotta, you've, you've gotta, you will not be able to follow me. You will not be able, not about going around and defending because you've got a job to do and that's not it. It's not about you. It's not about going around and defending yourself and defending your honor all the time. If you're not willing to be the bigger person and to break this cycle of violence that was gonna lead to more and more escalation, okay, well, you're not gonna be able to follow me very effectively. You're gonna find yourself in fights, in spats all the time. Great, you're a person who deserves honor. The Lord understands that. The Lord will make it right. It's not your job, Christian, to go around and defend your honor all the time. If that's what you're living for, you're not simultaneously gonna be able to live for Jesus. Jesus, what exactly do you mean? Don't resist the one who's evil, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Some of you might have a translation that says shirt in place of tunic or coat in place of cloak, and that's kind of helpful. That clears it up a little bit. Tunic is what we're talking about. It's undergarment. So this would be like tunic, like my actual shirt, and then like my coat would be my cloak. So somebody... It's just what Jesus is saying. Somebody's suing you for your undergarment. They want your shirt. Take them off. Take your shirt off. Give them your shirt. And then just give them your coat too. If you don't understand that, if that don't make no sense to you, there's a little bit of context here. Exodus 22. Exodus 22 is a law that says you can sue somebody for a tunic. So you're allowed to take this. That's what the law says you can have. You can, you can get my tunic. You, if you sue me, you can take my tunic. Maybe I got one at home. You can sue for a tunic. Exodus 22 says you can't sue for a coat for humanitarian reasons. Imagine somebody's poor. They got one coat. Let's imagine it's a cold night in Israel. Like if you sue me for my coat and I give you my coat, well, now I don't have a way to protect myself and stay warm. So the law says you cannot sue for a coat. And Jesus says if somebody wants your tunic, they, can get, they have a right to your tunic. They sue you for your tunic, you just voluntarily give them your coat too. If you say that, still don't make a lot of sense. It's hyperbole. It's an intentional overstatement for the point of making the point. And the point is, when people want, when people want to do you wrong, when people want to uh, mistreat you or take advantage of your rights, like you should be so not eager to defend your rights that you'll just voluntarily give them what they want. You can, have my, you can sue me for my shirt and I'll just throw my coat in for free. That's how not worried about defending my rights I am. Which guess what? You can only do if you're living all of your life unto God. You're living all of your life wrapped up in who God is and what he says is true and how your life reflects his glory. Only if and when you do that can you go around and say, I'm not worried about my rights. I don't don't live to defend my rights. This is not my, my burning passion is to go out and defend my rights and myself and my honor. Like, no, I'll tell you what, I'm the type of person who's so centered on God that if you want to sue me for my shirt, I got bigger fish to fry, just take my coat too. And we'll move on with this thing. Not gonna get into a a right defending contest with you. Christians are not the type of people who are defined by we just go around and defend our rights. Jesus, hey, what exactly? What what in the world? Who would want me to go a mile? Go with him two miles. Now, 
what in the world? Who would want me to go a mile? And if I went a mile, why would I go two miles? Who would ask me to go a mile? Well, the answer here in context is the Romans. Roman soldier. That's who could ask you to go one mile. You'll recall we just barely dipped our toes into it at the beginning of Matthew, but as we were kind of easing into Matthew, I said things like, at this point in time in the first century, the burning passion of the Jews, of the Israelites, are we got to get away from these Romans. These Romans have come in. We're under their authority. They exercise dominion over our territory. And if we could just get them out of here, if we could just go and be sovereign people, like we'd be fine. But these Romans, they come in, they defile us, they degrade us, they defile the way we worship God. They put all these laws and prohibitions around us. Like they're the problem. And if we could just get out from under the Romans, we'd be okay. So Jesus is saying this to his disciples who are all super Jewish Israelites at this point in time. And he's saying this to a people who would have heard Rome as a cuss word. And he says, if a Roman soldier wants you to carry his stuff, that's what, he would, that's what they could ask you to do. They could ask you to carry their stuff. If he asked you to carry it a mile, which is as far as they were allowed to tell him to carry it, he can take you all the way up to the limit of the law. And when you get to the limit of the law, you look at him and say, I'll go another mile if you want with you. You voluntarily, you voluntarily say, I'll go another one. Thank you, sir. May I have another? That is how, that is how ready you should be to be mistreated if it means being faithful. You're not Christians, Christ followers, disciples are not the people who go around saying the biggest, as long as I don't get mistreated, I'll be okay. As long as I get, don't get mistreated, I'll be okay. Brothers and sisters, if that's your burning passion, I'm not willing to be mistreated, you can't be a Christian. Let's just think about, I don't know, Jesus, who approaches mistreatment and looks it right in the face and is the, the most unjust acts that have ever been committed in the history of the world were committed against him, and he's, he did not say, I need to defend my honor. I need to defend my rights. I've got to avoid being mistreated. No, he said, I'm going to be faithful anyway. So what does it mean to be a disciple or Christ follower or Christian? It means that we would look or the, 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 the disgrace of our honor right in the face or the violation of our rights or somebody mistreating us and say, I'll be, I'm going to be faithful anyway. This ain't about me. I'm living my life under God. I got bigger fish to fry. I'm going to entrust myself to the Lord and I'm going to keep on going. Verse 42, Jesus, hey, what exactly does this mean? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Got a little shift here. Jesus is shifting in a couple of ways. The first shift we see, now we're not primarily centered on honor or our rights or mistreatment. We're centered on generosity, right? Which is a good indicator that Jesus is talking about something bigger than just being mistreated. There's a principle here that's bigger than that. So it's shift number one. Shift number two is now, not only is he not talking about defending questions, like give to the one, not just to lay down our rights, but to lay down our possessions. Give to the one who asks from you, who would borrow from you. Now, Jesus isn't commanding, if we read it in light of the rest of the Bible, I don't think he's commanding complete indiscriminate giving. He is commanding that we would give generously and liberally, but he's gonna go on to say in chapter seven, Right? He's going to say that our giving has discernment. We're going to see Paul write, 2 Thessalonians 3, like if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. So this is not just you're on a constant state of welfare all the time. No, it is you should have generosity in your heart. You should be willing to give. You don't withhold from the one that you need. But it's really undergirding the principle that we've seen in the last several verses. This ain't about you. And the disciple 
the Christ follower, the Christian, cannot spend all their energy on them because they're busy spending all their energy on God. Jesus was going to say, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and the things of this world. Guess what? Your civil rights are the things of this world. Your constitutional rights are things that are given to you by this world. Your honor is a worldly concept. It's not about that. It's about living for the Lord. So if I need to lay down my honor, I just need to put that aside so I can live for the Lord, Jesus says, do it. If I need to lay down my rights so I can live for the Lord, Jesus says, yeah, great, do it. I need to accept mistreatment so that I can continue living for the Lord. Jesus says, accept the mistreatment and move on. I need to lay down my stuff or put it to the side or not be so focused about it so I can be focused on Jesus. Jesus says, that's exactly what I'm asking you to do. In short, stop thinking everything's about you. It's not. It's about God. What does it mean to live all of our lives unto God? Living our lives unto God controls us, not our desire for us. Not our desire to protect ourselves or defend ourselves or get lots of possessions for ourselves or have lots of right for ourselves. That's not, a, that's not it. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing with that? That's a hard one. That's a, that's a challenging one. It's a hard one for you because you're an American. So when we start talking about stuff, you got lots of stuff. We got more stuff than anybody's ever had stuff. Like, so are you willing to look at your stuff and say, if that's getting in the way of me being obedient to Jesus, I'll just get rid of it. Like if it comes between Jesus and my stuff, I'm taking Jesus every time. Is that true of you or is that not true of you? Because we're on a collision course with a story that's gonna say that better be true of you. The rich young ruler did not make it into the kingdom of heaven because he cared about his stuff. So are you willing to lay down your stuff to be obedient and faithful to Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your rights to be obedient and faithful to Jesus? You're an American. You got more rights than just about anybody's ever had either. And we get on the news and it's rights and rights and rights and rights and rights and you can't do that. You're like, are you willing to sit all that aside and sit your patriotism aside if you can say, I'll lay this down to be faithful to Jesus? What comes first? Jesus or my rights? Is life about God or is life about you? It's the same question. What about your honor? Of the day, when it comes down to faith, don't run my name down. I get it. I don't like being disrespected either. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to faithfulness to Jesus or defending your honor, are you willing to let your honor be compromised to be faithful to Jesus? Or are you the type of person who's going to escalate a situation and get involved in some turmoil? Maybe it's even with a Christian over something like honor. Or are you just willing to say, I'll just accept being disrespected and move on down the road? I'm not commanding you to be a doormat. I don't think Jesus is saying we just become the world's doormat. Jesus is saying we get our priorities straight. I'm much more concerned about living for the Lord than I am walking around and defending my honor all the time. I'm not gonna get in ego battles with people. I'm more worried about living for the Lord. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing with that? You say, that's hard. That's really challenging, Jesus. You're stepping on my toes, Jesus. You made this really difficult for me, Jesus. How about our enemies? How are we supposed to respond to our enemies? Verse 43, uh, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, it, it, the, the clearest expression maybe in all of this antithesis section that Jesus is responding to what the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees are saying. Because when you want to talk about what's being said, what's being said is love your neighbors and hate your enemies. The first part of that, love your neighbors, you should love your neighbor, is very clearly written. 
It's coming from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. We're going to see it cited again. Jesus will talk about it again in Matthew 22. So we'll be back there. Very, very clearly written. Like it's, this is what the law says. Gotcha. The second part of that, hate your enemies, is written we know not where. Like we have no clue what that's talking about. There's what it seems to be from these people who know the content of the law so much and miss the spirit of the law so much. It seems to be a misapplication of maybe several texts like Deuteronomy 23, which is talking about like separating yourselves from evildoers or maybe a Psalm like Psalm 26 or Psalm 139, which is talking about uh, the, the wicked, hating those who hate the Lord. It seems to be a misapplication of texts like that. But Jesus is responding to what is being said. And this is what is being said, like love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You could see how for somebody like scribes, Pharisees, Pharisees, Sadducees, like that could be a really, really, really like convenient command, couldn't it? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This is easy to do. It's super easy to do, especially if I'm like a scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, and I get to define who a neighbor is. I just define my neighbors as the people that already love me and everybody else. I just hate them. That's not real hard. Like, it's very easy to do if I get to define who my neighbor is. So Jesus, like, help me out here. Would you please fill this up for me because I don't understand what they're saying. Verse 44. Uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, no. There's, there's not this two-tier division between people I like and people I don't like, and I love the people that like. That's not what it looks like to be not like that. Why must that? That's not what it looks like to be a Christian. Why? Why is it not like that? Why must I be a person who loves my enemies and to the extent I'll be willing to pray for the people who persecute me? Like, why would I do that, Jesus? They don't like me. 45. So that, here's why. So that you may be sons of your father, Who's in heaven? Because children tend to look like their father. So if you would be a disciple, a Christ follower, a Christian, you would become a son of God through faith. You're going to have to be the type of people who would love even those who hate you because that's what your father does. Jesus, can you prove that? Jesus, can you, can you definitively show me that God does this ridiculous thing, this irreconcilable thing in my mind that you're asking me now to do? Like, if this is the cost of discipleship, you're saying, this is what I must do because my father does it. Can you show me that my father does it for or because he makes his sons rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and the unjust? Unbelievers get sunburned. The sun shines on them too. God generously and liberally gives his goodness and his grace and his kindness to all people indiscriminately. There's not perpetually clouds over unbelievers. Like the sun shines on them too. They get its benefits too. There's not perpetually like a shield that keeps it from raining on unbelievers. If they hate the Lord, it still rains on them. They still get the benefits of the sunshine and the rain. We've got some folks in here, a few of you I know at least, who do a little farming or maybe at least do a little gardening. I'm just here to tell you, like if you had a good crop this year, you got some good stuff out to garden this year, you had fertile fields this year, like your unbelieving neighbor who doesn't love the Lord or love his people or want to gather with them, like if they're down the road or down the street or across the town, like they, got, they had a good year too. It rained on them too. The sun shined on them too. We call this God's common grace. Theologians refer to this as God's common 
grace, which means there, there is, God is good and he is kind and is, 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 is generous. And all people feel that indiscriminately. Another area that you can see this really clearly is talents. There are like artists and chefs and business people, athletes who are really great athletes who love the Lord. And then there's artists and chefs and athletes and uh, business people who don't love the Lord. And they can both be really good and really talented because everybody's a recipient of God's goodness and his kindness and his generosity. Here's the divide. Some of us understand that God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance, and some of us don't. And so that's where common grace ends. And now we're having a conversation about salvific grace. The grace that saves us is not given out indiscriminately. It's given to people who love the Lord and respond to repentance and belief. So that's not, again, common. It's common in the sense it's available to everybody. It's not common in the sense everybody gets it. But Jesus here is talking about God's Even people who are busy saying, we're going to worship a different God. Even even people who are busy saying, we despise God. Even people who say, we're going to worship a different God. Even people who say, we're going to worship Satan. Like, guess what? The sun still shines on them. They still get rain. God still sustains their lives. The air around them still has oxygen in it. Like, God is actively at work in them, and they're not realizing that his goodness is meant to lead them to repentance. But Jesus says, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to be a distinct, set-apart people, you're going to have to be the people who practice that common grace towards everybody. Even your enemies, you're going to have to be a people who love them and would pray for the people who persecute you. Because if you want to be a distinct people, that's what it's going to take. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Like If you love people that love you, that ain't no big deal, really. Everybody does that. You know how much everybody does that? Everybody does that to the extent that tax collectors do that. Tax collectors. I don't know if we've gone over tax collectors in depth or not, but here's what you need to know to get this. Tax collectors are traitors. Tax collectors are Jews. They're Israelites who've been conscripted by the Roman government. They now work for the Romans, and they go around and collect tax money for the Romans from their Jewish brothers and sisters. So guess what? Everybody hates the tax collectors because they're sellouts. They've turned their backs on their own people, on their own brothers and sisters. Like, they literally forsook them for the sake of making money. And so people can't stand them. And Jesus says, you know those tax collectors that you can't stand, those traitors who've turned their backs on Israel? They will do this. When people manage to love them in spite of them, like, they'll be able to love them in return. Tax collectors love other people that love them. So if you think you're gonna really do something, you're really gonna be something, you're really gonna make a statement that you're my people, because you love people who love you, nobody cares. Everybody's doing that. Even the tax collectors do that. You know who else would do that? Verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Like if you're only willing to go out of your way to be good and gracious and kind to people who you know are gonna be good and gracious and kind to you in return, that's not revolutionary. No one cares. You know who else does that? The Gentiles. The Romans, those Greco-Roman, idol-worshiping pagan people will literally do the same thing. They have no problem being nice and friendly and hospitable to people who are going to return the favor. So if you think you've really done something by doing that, you're wrong. You know how you'll do something? By being good and kind and gracious to people who you don't expect to be good or kind or gracious in return. 
The command here is that we would be, if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to look like sons of God, we're going to have to be good and kind and gracious and loving towards everybody because that's who the Father is too. That's how our Heavenly Father interacts with us too. Filling it for us. Like, what does it mean? Jesus, can you show us like this? You've heard it said. It's not like that, but it's like this. Yes, six times. He's walked through this. You've heard it said, but it's not like that. It's like this. You've heard it said. It's not like that, but it's like this. We, we've made it through here six times. And Jesus didn't have to just like pick these six times because it's all he could do. It's a summary. Jesus could have surely done this all day. Jesus could have taken everything that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees were teaching and actually Filled up the meaning of it. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He's picked a few that step on our toes in particular ways for an example for us. And then he leaves us with the summary statement. Verse 48. It's not new. It's a summary of everything we've read. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 48 is Jesus' point. And it's been Jesus' point the whole time. This is the fullness of the law. The fullness of the law is that you would be perfect. The fullness of the law is that you would be like God in terms of your character. Why? Why does that super, totally, altogether make sense? Because it's the law. And laws have, I don't know, lawgivers. And laws always reflect the lawgiver. So when you think about the law, it's not disconnected or far off from God. It's not a bunch of random things that God thought up and threw down on a piece of paper for these people to be convicted by. Like, no, it's a reflection of who he is. He is holy, and he is just, and he is righteous, and he's set apart. He's perfect. And so if you would work your way into the kingdom of God, here's how you got to do it. You got to be perfect. And you say, Thomas, I, I can't do that. Thomas, I don't know that I can live all of my life entirely unto God in every single area for all time without fail. And I say to you, that's kind of the point. Jesus has filled up the law to show us what it really is. So we're going to be able to figure out who he really is. Galatians chapter 3 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law has come to show you, you will not save yourself. If you would be saved, if you would actually live all of your life unto God, you're going to have to get your righteousness from somewhere else because you're not going to be able to justify yourself before God because the only people who are going to be justified before God are the people who are perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. If only we had somebody to do that for us. If only we could get perfection. Romans 8. Verse three, he condemned sin in the, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus. 
This is his teaching. This is his first block of teaching is handed to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're seeing really, really clearly, like what Jesus believes is that there's a God. And there's a God who's created you. There's a God who owns you. There's a God to whom you're accountable. And the problem for you is he's perfect. The problem that you have is that he's completely holy. He's never sinned. He's not capable of sin. And the challenge you have is that you're only capable of sin. When you hold yourself up to God, God's saying every thought you've ever had is tainted somehow, some way. You can't do it because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So when it comes to stuff like anger, you're guilty. When it comes to stuff like sexual immorality, you're guilty. When it comes to stuff like retaliation, you're guilty. When it comes to stuff like loving other people even when they don't love you, like you have not done that perfectly. And Jesus says, I have. I'm the one who's come to do it perfectly. I'm the one who's actually come to not only take the wrath that you deserve because you're a sinner, but to fulfill righteousness on your behalf. Like you're not perfect, but Jesus is. And the good news that he's gonna spend the rest of the gospel proclaiming is that you can have his righteousness. He'll give it to you. He'll give you a heart that hates your sin and wants him. He'll give you a heart that, that prizes what he prizes, that hates the things that he hates, that loves the things that he loves. He'll work that in your life. And if that is worked in your life, if that's who you are, you become a person who's turning from your sin and clinging to Jesus, guess what? You are perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that'll mean something radical for your life. We'll continue to explore that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, uh, we do thank you that we don't have to leave here wondering whether we're condemned or not. We've read this morning that there's uh, no one righteous, no, not one. We've read that we've all turned away. We've read that we're fools. We've read that we don't have any knowledge. And so, Lord, uh, make us the people who don't pretend to have knowledge. Make us the people who don't pretend not to be foolish. Make us the people who don't pretend that we're going to save ourselves by our own righteousness because we're not. Because your word says that the standard is that we will be perfect. Not our definition of perfect, but as you're perfect. So Lord, make every person in this room realize that we have not done that and that we have failed and that we will not deliver ourselves. But make every person in this room realize that Jesus can Jesus has paid everything necessary to ransom us from death and hell and the grave. And Jesus has fulfilled everything that the law requires on our behalf, for us, in our place, so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, we thank you for this good news. Make us all, everyone, a people who would cling to this good news and walk in this good news. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a hymn of response. I would encourage you to respond. If you want to come talk